Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and super fun episode today. Today we are going to learn more about Southwest Airlines, which turns 50 years old this week. I'm going to talk with our friend Richard West, who is Southwest's historian. And honestly, I, I think Richard and I could have talked for hours given all the stories about Southwest. There were so many more things I wanted to be able to talk to Richard about. So if you're interested in learning more about Southwest after this episode, you may want to check out southwest50.com, where you can explore a lot more content, uh, enter a sweepstakes, and check out some of the uh, commemorative merch if you are a fan of the Southwest brand like I am. Now, Southwest really has been one of the most iconic companies that's come along in the last 50 years. And when you consider how different they were and continue to be compared to other airlines, you realize how significant their impact has been on air travel and on the industry. Their business performance in terms of their profitability, which has enabled them to maintain lower fares, uh, their company culture, which they've become nearly as famous for as their service. And a lot of the innovations that they have made really make you realize how truly unique a company Southwest is. And one area that I wish Richard and I had been able to get into a little more, frankly, is a lot of the operational innovations that really are core to their business performance and profitability. They are an incredibly well-run business, and there's so much to learn from and, and to geek out on. Um, so without further ado, let's talk to Richard West, corporate historian of Southwest Airlines. Richard, welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me today, Jason. How's it going? Uh, it's going great and uh, happy anniversary uh, to Southwest and um Obviously, it's it's been a, a heck of a of a year, <laughs> um, uh, ramping up to your your fiftieth anniversary milestone, and and we'll get into that. Um, but what I wanted to begin with, Richard, is uh, as the uh, as, as the archivist and historian there at Southwest, if you could just share a little bit of the origin story. Um, obviously, uh, the the fiftieth anniversary takes us back to uh, the beginnings of Southwest in in nineteen seventy one. Um, but as, as, as we know, uh, really the origins of the company start uh, well before that. And, uh, and that's quite a story just in terms of uh, uh, the prehistory, if you will. Um, so share a little bit about the origin of, of Southwest and, and what was the initial vision for the airline and what challenges did it encounter um, getting, uh, getting off the ground, so to speak? Well, June 18th, 1971 is certainly a huge date in our history. Um, that morning was our very first commercial flight. Uh, it left Love Field around 7 a.m. to go down to San Antonio. And it's a date that we've uh, celebrated every year since. So uh, we'll, we'll hit that big 50 mark next week. But uh, I, I really like to say that's not where the story begins. It goes all the way back to the mid to late 1960s. In fact, um, I would probably say that the unofficial birthday is actually March 15, 1967, and that's the day that Herb Kelleher filed with the state of Texas to incorporate a new company, which at the time was known as Air Southwest. We know that a couple of years down the road, it changed to the Southwest Airlines we know today. But really, that story began one fall evening at a cocktail lounge in San Antonio, the, the St. Anthony Club specifically 
which was right across the street from Herb Kelleher's law firm. And that day he had been meeting with one of his clients uh, by the name of Rollin King, who was uh, another businessman who had a smaller airline, which was really more of a, a charter company. It flew some turboprop airplanes to some smaller cities around Texas that uh, worked well for some hunting and fishing charters and a few other folks, but it never really took off, pardon the pun. Uh, and so Rollin approached Herb to actually dissolve that company. But in the course of the conversation, he said, you know what, my uh, banker has actually been out in California and he saw how they have airlines that fly pretty much just within the borders of the state of California. And he thought that might be something worth considering in Texas. And I think it's worth a shot. And so they agreed to uh, discuss it after the day's official business was done over drinks. And that particular afternoon or evening is when the legend of the cocktail napkin began, where they sat down at the St. Anthony and sketched out that famous Texas triangle connecting the cities of Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. And it became really our uh, first business plan. So uh, that was something that there were some feasibility studies along with uh, some other logistics uh, during the early part of 1967 that led to her making that filing with the state of Texas on March 15th. And then about, uh, or just about a year later is when we began the process of actually getting certified. So in January of 1968, Herb decided that we would actually approach the state of Texas instead of the federal government to get an operating certificate. Um, and what was different back then is, you know, I would compare it probably to how you'd get a driver license or register your car today with whatever state that you live in. So in the late 1960s, we had a thing called the Texas Aeronautics Commission, and that was who Southwest applied to actually get that very first operating certificate from. And on February 20th, 1968, the Texas Aeronautics Commission voted unanimously to grant that certification. It was called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity. So you can think of it kind of as the operating certificate that an airline would get from the FAA today. But the very next day, the legacy airlines, including uh, Braniff and Trans-Texas and Continental, they went to court to get a temporary restraining order to prevent the Texas Aeronautics Commission from actually providing that certificate to Southwest so that we could continue pursuing those very first operations. And that and was a journey. Why, why, why did they do that? I think they actually took the plan seriously. You know, uh, what that document actually included that was submitted for approval was something that was very much plausible. It wasn't a new person that had no idea what they were doing going in saying that, we're gonna fly 747s from Love Field down to Houston, as well as to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and everywhere else in the world. Uh, it wasn't an airline that was coming in to um, be everything to everyone, which probably wouldn't have been successful, particularly on the economic crisis that began in the early 1970s with fuel and so forth. It was something that actually made sense. Um, you know, Coming in with some uh, jet-powered airliners to fly between just three cities and have low fares, good service, and that was something that they actually took seriously, and they didn't want a new entrant into that um, business that they dominated, and it was- Just to uh, reiterate, that was really the vision for the company. Then it was, and, and I imagine, because you, you mentioned it or alluded to it before, Richard, that following this model they had seen with aviation companies in California, 
I assume there was maybe less regulatory restrictions because they were not planning on flying out of the state. And so the entire kind of business model for Southwest was essentially for the the airline to basically just fly between, uh, what was it, San Antonio, Dallas, and and Houston? Yes, that was the plan. It would be exclusively an intrastate airline within the borders of Texas. And because of that, there wasn't that same requirement to have federal certification. There were still right. safety requirements that um, we had to weigh in with the Civil Aeronautics Board and the Federal Aviation Agency at the time. Um, it was um, a plan that would be you know, just regulated by ultimately the laws of Texas within the borders. And at the time, there wasn't the same desire to expand beyond those borders. Got it. So, so then what happened when uh, these larger airlines then tried to, uh, to, to, to essentially uh, uh, disable Southwest from uh, getting, getting off the ground to continue the bad pun? Well, Herb Kelleher spent the better part of the next two and a half years from courtroom to courtroom, not just in um, the state of Texas, but at the federal level in New Orleans. And finally, in December of 1970, it took him all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And so at that time, the Supreme Court, um, after countless losses, and then finally a, uh, a ruling that was in Southwest favor, they actually denied the final appeal that Braniff and Trans-Texas uh, made to um, prevent Southwest from getting off the ground. And at that point is when you could say things started turning around and we could actually pursue things like hiring employees, buying airplanes, securing leases at airports. But it was something that over the course of that two and a half years that had uh, pretty much bankrupt what was an airline with no employees or no airplanes to the point that uh, the board of directors had even said, you know what, folks, this doesn't look like it's going to work out. And everyone except for Herb Kelleher had given up to the point where Herb said, you know what, I'm going to take this one more round and I'll actually pay the expenses out of my own pocket. And that's what he did to actually get there to the doors of the United States Supreme Court. And thank goodness he did because he was right. After Southwest then got up and, and, and running, you know, the, the, the airline industry was, was so much different, you know, 50 years ago than, than it is today. What, what were what, what are some of the kind of main contrasts between what air travel was like when Southwest got started compared compared to now? And, and, and what role has has Southwest played in, in that transformation? I would say my the favorite my favorite way that I've ever heard it described is how Southwest democratized the skies. So if you think about what air travel was, particularly in the regulated environment where the federal government said, these are the airplanes you can fly, these are the destinations you can fly to, and this is what you can charge, Southwest was the big disruptor in that. So at the time of our first flight, I think it was something like far less than one in five people in the United States had ever been on an airplane. And Southwest really changed that. Mm -hmm. uh, there were so many more opportunities for folks to uh, take a trip where they would have otherwise driven their car the 250 miles or so between cities like Dallas and Houston to be able to make that into an affordable day trip, really providing that access to travel for both business and for leisure travel to a good segment of the population that would have otherwise never have been on an airplane. And it's something that uh, really caught on. 
Later in the 1970s, um, President Carter at the time signed the Airline Deregulation Act into law in 1978. And really, that was something that even at the time, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy cited as uh, something that showed where this idea could be successful and how it would benefit the public. And when did, when did Southwest start flying beyond the borders of Texas? That didn't come until January of 1979. So it was a few months after the president had signed that Airline Deregulation Act into law, but it wasn't an immediate light switch. So there were still some hurdles that even Southwest had to overcome in terms of uh, we actually had to pursue um, federal certification for the first time of the airline. So it was in January of 1979 when we transitioned from that uh, Texas level of certification of the airline to the federal level with the FAA. So if you actually look at the date that's on our airline operating certificate that uh, is hanging in Herb Kelleher's office, you'll see that January of 1979 timeframe. And a lot of folks wonder like, why in the world didn't you get a certificate until then? And it was really because that's when we started expanding beyond the state of Texas. So at the end of January, we had our very first um, flight that would go beyond the borders of Texas. And it was between Houston Hobby over to New Orleans, our very first uh, interstate flight. And that's really what began that expansion that took us uh, throughout the United States. And when, when we started working together, Richard, I, I learned a, a new term, which I think I might have heard before, but it certainly became a, a, a much more familiar concept. And that's the concept of what's called the Southwest effect. Um, can you explain what, what that is? So the Southwest effect is a term that was uh, coined by the Department of Transportation in 1993. And what that reviewed and proved was when Southwest went into a new market, there was a well-documented drop in the average airfare along with uh, passenger traffic increasing. So if you take a look at some of those markets that we went into, um, particularly in the late 80s and the early 90s, that was a huge period of expansion for Southwest. And the airports that we were going into, so if you take, um, you know, our very first destination in the Eastern time zone was Detroit. Um, it was a destination that really had been um, kind of stuck in the old way of pricing and same destinations. And when Southwest came in and offered our low fares and high frequency, it really opened up a lot of doors for the traveling public. And it's something that is still uh, there today. If you look at some of the new markets that we've gone into, um, even in places like Hawaii, you can see that there is just uh, so many more options for the traveling public. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, I, I think most people would think about when they think about Southwest is, is not only the, the, the lower cost and, and the impact that that's had on air travel, but also just the customer experience, the travel experience on, on Southwest. And certainly when you go back and look at, look at images of, of the airline and, and the, the flight attendants in the 1970s and 1980s, it's definitely a very stark contrast to the more sort of buttoned up uh, look that, that you might have seen on, you know, United or American or, or, or Pan Am or whatever. And a, a lot of that sort of maverick disruptor kind of uh, uh, ethos that, that you, you, you talk about, you know, came from, from, from Herb. Um, but there was a lot of other figures in, in the company that, are, that, that had a big effect on that, that, that culture. And can, can you share a little bit more about who were some of the other 
uh, maybe colorful characters or, or, or characters maybe more behind the scenes behind Herb that they really reflect what Southwest was all about and, and that infamous culture? I think the person that really best sums up that early 1970s maverick appeal, take no gruff, take no prisoners, would have been our very first president and CEO, Lamar Muse. And Lamar was a guy that had been around through quite a few other airlines, and he really wasn't afraid to say his piece. He also wasn't afraid to really go against the grain. And that's what he brought to Southwest in terms of he had the pedigree of the experience and leadership roles at other airlines, but he wasn't afraid to try something new. And that's exactly what Southwest needed was somebody with that grit that wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty to make things happen. So Lamar um, specifically was the person right after we got the um, ultimate successful verdict from the Supreme Court in late 1970, he was hired within a few weeks to become that first operational CEO. And that meant that he could go in and begin to establish his leadership team, which included um, some other folks that had been at other airlines. Um, their name, um, was the over the hill gang is what they uh, affectionately called themselves. Um, some other folks that had the uh, operating experience at other airlines, but also weren't afraid to try something that was different for the time. And so one of the very first things they did was to secure what that um, image would be of Southwest. And it was with the help of the Bloom Agency here in Dallas that uh, really helped define what that iconic Southwest hostess would be. It was very intentional that it wasn't going to be the traditional airline steward or stewardess that was very common. Um, you know, you'd see those quite a bit on some of those other airlines you mentioned a moment ago with that real buttoned up um, appeal, but that's not what Southwest was. You know, we wanted those uh, at the time, ladies that became our first hostesses, as well as our ticket agents and the other employees that our customers would see at the airport to really have that personality that was appealing to folks that may not have been as in tune with what other airlines at the time were offering. Um, and that's what defined that early image of Southwest in terms of everything from the personalities to the uniforms that they would wear and how we treated everyone on board. The idea with that was if you traveled on Southwest, you may not necessarily have seen a TV ad or seen us in the newspaper, but you'd have a good experience. You got to where you were going on time. You had a great fare. And the thought was you might go tell your neighbor or your friend or your family members that, hey, last week when I had my trip down to San Antonio, I tried this new airline called Southwest. You really got to go check it out. Hmm. I, I have to say, not, not, not to make all the stories about her, but I have to say one of the craziest stories and certainly one of my favorite stories uh, about Southwest has to be what became known as the malice in Dallas. Um, what, what was that all about? So that was something that, uh, gosh, it's probably one of the craziest stories you'll ever hear about, uh, particularly in the airline industry, where in late 1991, Southwest began using a slogan that was just plain smart. And at the time, Southwest really didn't have terribly much service on the East Coast, particularly in the neighborhood of the Southeast or South Carolina, where there was another company called Stevens Aviation that actually had been using Plane Smart in some of their promotions. Now, Stevens wasn't an airline. Um, they were what's called a fixed base operator or essentially 
a service station that you might find at a smaller airport. Um, they did offer some uh, charter service, perhaps on corporate jets and smaller airplanes, but by no means was a direct competitor. But they, uh, they did see that there was a company over in Texas that uh, was starting to have a national presence that was using a very similar just plain smart in their advertising. So as the story goes, um, their president at the time, Kurt Kerwald, uh, blindly called Southwest Airlines and said, hey, you're using my slogan. Um, I think we should discuss it. And we all know where that usually goes afterwards, which uh, probably would be straight to uh, the courthouse to file a lawsuit. And that was something where, you know, really looking back at that genius of Herb Kelleher, where he saw an opportunity to make something positive out of this. So in March of 1992, um, the two leaders uh, agreed to have an arm wrestling competition to settle the dispute. So uh, if you think about all the other ways that um, something like that could have happened, particularly with multi-year court battles, by no means something that uh, Herb Kelleher was a stranger to. It was something that was settled uh, probably in less than an hour where um, the two of them actually went to the Dallas Sportsatorium and uh, went into the squared circle to settle the um, disagreement about that term over um, a best two out of three arm wrestling competition. Um, at the end, um, Stevens Aviation actually did end up winning the arm wrestling competition, but uh, it wasn't with without a lot of antics along the way. So there was everything from cheerleaders to some professional wrestlers of the day that were in attendance. Quite the spectacle, but at the end, um, the two agreed to share the term just plain smart. And instead of um, spending countless hundreds of thousands of dollars on litigation, they both made a donation to each other's favorite charity. And Herb Keller at the end of it said, you know what, um, you know, there's, this is not something that either one of us could have you know, paid for the level of publicity we've received, um, even to the extent that he received um, congratulatory letters from everyone from Jerry Lewis to George Bush and countless other folks around the industry that really wanted to pat him on the back for saying, job well done. This is the way that we really wish business could be conducted. Yeah, and just to to add some color commentary on that, I mean, if you I think if you search just like the the, the malice in Dallas on YouTube, there's video uh, that people can check out, and it is absolutely hilarious. It is one of the most insane things I have ever seen in terms of a uh, of a, in terms of a a company uh, a company event, if you want to call it that. It's you know the the image of uh, of. Herb going into the ring with a, a cigarette hanging out of his mouth is just absolutely <laughs> priceless. Yeah, the, the cigarette and then the uh, the belt with all the little wild turkeys on it. Right. And uh, as part of the spectacle, you see him go out on the end on a stretcher, but somebody puts a big sub sandwich on him and, of course, the uh, obligatory cigarette. Oh, man. So what what are some of your favorite stories that, that folks may not know about or um, or, or maybe a, a different take on a, on a well-known story that, that that may be kind of misunderstood? What, what, what are one of your favorite stories that you would you would tell a friend at a bar? I think the fact that Herb Kelleher, not only was he just a really great all around person that cared, he was somebody that was indeed the real deal. Um, you know, I look back at my role at Southwest. Um, I started about 10 years ago and uh, started working full time within our corporate campus at Dallas about eight years ago. And 
one of my very first few days working in the building, um, I was fortunate enough to be in the hallway and you heard that uh, resounding laugh start to trickle down the hallway. And I'm like, you know what? I bet you that's Herb. And so uh, I got brave enough to walk over and shake his hand. And I said, oh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Kelleher. And the very first thing he said was, uh, no, it, it's Herb. It was, you know, he was somebody that was down to earth enough that even though he was in, you know, that well-respected role um, to everybody, whether it was a new hire employee or a chief justice of the Supreme Court and everyone else in between, that was his level of authenticity. Um, and so I introduced myself. I said, my name's Richard and what I did. And, uh, you know, he was extremely kind, uh, but that was about the last time I saw him in a situation like that for probably, gosh, I'll say two years. So, you know, two years later, um, something similar where I was walking down the hallway and Herb, I think was, might've been speaking with somebody else at the time, but uh, he looked up from the other conversation he was having and he said, hi, Richard, how are you? And I was just shocked that, you know, after all of that time, um, since I had actually introduced myself, that not only did he remember me, but wow. he, it was important enough to him to actually acknowledge, um, you know, everyone by name. I have no idea how in the world any human being could have the capacity to have that mm. level of connection with so many people over the years. But, um, you know, somebody that really follows in his footsteps that way is Gary Kelly. Um, somebody else with just that tremendous capacity to have that human level of interaction with people, remember names, but also just be a fantastic leader. Mm. Is that what you would say is the secret sauce to, as an employee of the company and, it, and as someone who's, who's, you know, been a, I guess, a beneficiary, if you will, uh, for lack of a better word, of the company culture? I mean, what do, what do you think keeps it that way? Is it the leadership? What, what's the secret sauce of Southwest's culture? The tone is definitely set from the top, um, from that senior most Gary Kelly level um, that it, it's there. But uh, one thing, when we get that question a lot from employees about, you know, what about the culture and so forth, the very first thing that comes to mind is it's all of us. So the, the culture really begins with the employees. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how fortunate I am to, to be on the, the team that I am. The people that I work with are just phenomenal, but it's not exclusive to that one little group. Um, the, the department that my function actually falls in, it's uh, called our cultural, pardon me, culture and engagement department, but it's uh, very much across the board. So it's pretty amazing when we have some opportunities to go out on the ramp and um, move some baggage with our ramp agents. When you crawl up in the bin and have a chance to talk to one of those folks, just how great they are. So everything from our corporate headquarters campus to the operation, just some fantastic people that legitimately care. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, in, in, in talking about the history of the company and that, that culture that you speak of, Richard, you know, it goes without saying we'd probably be remiss not to acknowledge that um, sort of sadly, and, and maybe a bit ironically, given the challenges of the origins of the business that, that you, you spoke to uh, there at the top, you know, the last 18 months has been such a traumatic experience, obviously, for so many businesses and, 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 and certainly, um, you know, few, few industries or companies have been impacted um, as as adversely as as the aviation industry, what what have the last eighteen months been like for Southwest? And you know how 
how has the culture and how has the the history of the organization um, kind of been used or or approached as a um, as a as a as a superpower, if you will, uh, over this last year and a half of of the challenges that you guys have faced? I'd say ultimately that level of caring and that culture is really what's held us together over these last tumultuous months. Uh, I, I don't think that anyone could have ever imagined that we would have been knocked down to our knees the same way we were in those early days in the 1970s. Um, Southwest didn't become profitable for the first about three years of operation. So 1973 was the very first time that we had an annual profit. And it was a streak that went on um, for more than 45 years, um, unprecedented in most businesses, but particularly in the airline industry, where pretty much every legacy airline that's out there today has gone through at least one bankruptcy. So it was something where when we began to start to see that dip in passenger demand, uh, cancellations, and then just some really dramatic, almost overnight changes that really began in late February of, of 2020, and particularly going into March of 2020, where our demand went from, you know, somewhere about, we'll say roughly half a million customers a day to um, maybe two or 3% of that at the worst. So at no other time I can think of in our company's history had there been that need to adapt. So it was everything from canceling flights to employees taking some uh, voluntary leave packages to really that focus on low cost that got Southwest to where we are today. So it, it wasn't an easy ride um, and by no means are we out of the woods yet, but it's something where um, it, it's just so remarkable to look back to where we started off 2020 with the opportunities that were ahead of us, perhaps some of the best um, traffic we had seen in our history and you know a really bright future to almost overnight there being next to no demand whatsoever for the service we had to offer. Mm. Well, Richard, it's an amazing company and, uh, uh, and it's an iconic brand and uh, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, to, uh, to talk to you about it and, uh, and, and to work with, with you and your colleagues at, uh, at Southwest on the 50th anniversary. Um, what, uh, what's the company doing for the 50th and, uh, how might, um, customers and fans of the brand, uh, want to get involved? Well, uh, the, the easiest thing, uh, right now we're working on a, uh, a website, southwest50.com that you can see quite a bit more about our history and what we're doing to celebrate. And so as we, uh, have this conversation this morning, we're getting ready for that, uh, big 50th celebration, which will take place on. June 18th next week, um, where we'll have um, a small gathering that'll be down in Houston for um, a group of employees that actually uh, want an opportunity to attend in a raffle. And it will be um, streamed for all 60,000 of our employees to, um, to take part in virtually as well. But it doesn't end there. Um, there's actually several books that are in the works that History Factory has been kind enough to really help us find some of those wonderful stories in our past and not just uh, tell them in a black and white format, but a way that we can really um, get a good 360 on what some of those great tales are about Southwest and how we can share them both with our employees and the fans of our brand uh, outside of our walls as well. Awesome. 
Well, Richard, happy uh, happy fiftieth, and uh, we'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, seeing you soon, my friend. Well, thank you so much, Jason. It's been a pleasure talking with you this morning, and uh, it, it's it's been great. Thank you. Thanks again to Richard. And again, if you're interested in learning more about Southwest and getting involved with the 50th anniversary, go to southwest50.com. Uh, it, it came up in our discussion that the History Factory works with Southwest. And not to brag, but I have to tell you how much fun it is to have them as a client. There are certain clients that you're really excited to work with based on what you know or what you think of them. And then sometimes that experience isn't quite what you would hope for. But everyone that we work with at Southwest is great. And if anything, my admiration for the company and the brand has only been stronger uh, since we've had the opportunity and the privilege to work with them over these last few years. So on that note, thanks for listening. Happy 50th anniversary to Southwest. We are going to be back with some new episodes of History Factory plugged in very soon. Our next episode, uh, which I believe is going to drop later this week, will honor Juneteenth. And I will be talking to Professor Matthew Delmont from Dartmouth College. So check that out. And we'll also be uh, be talking soon about one of the most delicate moments in almost any company's history when we talk about History Factory's new research report on leadership transitions. So stay tuned for that in the next week or two as well. Until then, I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks for checking out History Factory Plugged In. Thanks again to our friend Richard West for stopping by to talk about the iconic Southwest Airlines. Be good, and we'll be back soon with a new episode.